This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department's Contractor Cybersecurity Initiative is on the move. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, CMMC, will no longer be run out of the Pentagon's Acquisition Directorate. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Justin, give us the details. What is going on the latest here? So the CMMC program is moving to the DOD Chief Information Officer's uh, office. Uh, the DOD CIO is John Sherman, and he's taking over the CMMC program. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks directed the move in a February 2nd memo. And a team of six civilians from the Acquisition Directorate who have been working on the CMMC program will move over to the CIO's office to grant some continuity there. That includes Stacey Boschanik, who's been serving as director of CMMC policy. They'll be aligned under David McCune, the deputy CIO for cybersecurity. He already runs some programs to improve cyber information sharing with the defense industrial base. So it kind of lines up with what he's already doing. Hicks's memo also eliminates Katie Arrington's old position. She was the chief information security officer within the acquisition directorate, had, of course, led CMMC program, the CMMC program since its inception, but she was placed on administrative leave last May after security clearance was suspended. So first went Katie, then went the position. And this seems a little strange only because it was primarily a contractor-focused program where contracting officers were the point people on making sure that the contractors had their certification. So why are they doing this now? Well, it, it, there's a couple different reasons people have pointed out to me. DOD did not provide an explicit reason, but logically the DOD CIO's office sets department-wide cyber policy. They oversee IT and cybersecurity standards. And of course, CMMC is a cyber standard. It lays out different cyber practices that contractors will one day have to follow in order to win defense contracts. But perhaps the bigger reason is that the program is at an inflection point. It was under review for much of last year after facing criticisms for being too costly. And so they came out of that review in November and are moving forward with the CMMC 2.0 model, where ultimately less companies will need to get certified. But there's a leadership gap. As we mentioned, Katie Arrington is gone. Ellen, Ellen Lord, who was the head of Pentagon's acquisitions under the Trump administration, has also not been replaced. So there's there's not many permanent leaders in the acquisition directorate. I spoke to Bob Metzger, a contracting attorney and head of the Washington office for Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. And he pointed out that this move may come down to there being more stable leadership in the CIO's office. CMMC imposes some burden on companies and raises many questions. And so it's important to have a leadership that can make decisions and implement them, especially as they are undertaking the very significant challenge of recasting the program through two new rulemaking efforts. So one of the key reasons that this move was made was to get it in the hands of officials who can be, and I understand, are decisive. And that's attorney Rob Metzger. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. And so now that it has moved out of acquisition, will the acquisition directorate have any role here? Well, as you pointed out, the acquisition directorate still sets contracting policy, and they will certainly have a role to play in actually implementing the contracting language for CMMC requirements. That's a that's a huge role in this process. And John Sherman, the DOD CIO, has said they will certainly still be involved in that process. They also interface with the defense industrial base and, and share information. So the acquisition office is, is certainly still going to care about CMMC and be involved. The uh, Beyond CMMC, that office will continue to lead other supply chain risk management initiatives. 
It will still oversee the cybersecurity of weapons systems. So cybersecurity will continue to be a priority for the acquisition directorate. Now, there was some rulemaking in the offing there for CMMC that would go into the federal acquisition regulation, I guess the DFAR supplement there. So what's the status there? What can we expect? Yeah, well, as part of last week's announcement, uh, John Sherman said that they are going to move out in the coming weeks on a rulemaking process to actually propose some changes to the defense federal acquisition regulation supplement to start implementing CMMC. And that would be a pretty big deal if they could initiate the rulemaking process here within within the first half of the year, really, because previously officials had said CMMC 2.0 would take until the end of this year at the very earliest to begin implementing. So, you know, it's been a year since DOD initiated that review that led to CMMC 2.0. Throughout that review, there was very little said publicly about the state of the CMMC program. So you can expect that industry is going to start pressing the CIO's office now for answers on the path forward. Uh, Here's Metzger again. You know, industry is again becoming frustrated that CMMC 2.0 is announced. We have a new website. There's lots of new documentation. But as is always the case, new documentation generates new and different questions. And it's not going to be good to have another six months where DOD is working within a closed black box and industry is waiting for smoke to emerge before it is told what it must do. Getting decisions done more quickly and having them done uh, perhaps on a more expert uh, basis, I think that's good. Well, there's no smoke, but we now know who the Pope of CMMC is, Justin. But my question is, with 2.0 coming out some months back, contractors already were aware of how things would change. So this organizational change is kind of backfilling the establishment of 2.0. So things don't seem to be changing that much for contractors. They were waiting for rules then, and they're still waiting for rules, but they know what the parameters of 2.0 are, fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. The the actual outline of CMMC 2.0, the details where they are now only going to have a certain amount of contractors who handle more sensitive information be required to get certifications, that's still the case here. They're not changing that broad outline of CMMC 2.0. Of course, where the rubber hits the road is in these rulemaking processes. All that's been put out so far is essentially intentions. And so the rulemaking leads to actual contract requirements. And so as Bob Metzger mentioned, industry is looking for specific details on how this is actually going to work in practice. So we'll have to wait and see what the proposed rules are. And if they come out with proposed rather than interim, then there will be that time to comment. And so this could be another six months till everything's finalized. Well, the idea when CMMC 2.0 was announced last November is that the interim final rule would come out and then industry would have 60 days to comment before it became effective. So about two months there between when the details come out and when these requirements can start showing up in contracts. Yeah. So interim final means learn to love it, folks. Yeah, exactly. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his ongoing coverage of this at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, 
and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. SMS text, 1118 AM. Hey girl, emergency. You wouldn't believe what just happened. Are you at your desk? I ripped my skirt and like half my tush is hanging out. 
Third floor bathroom. Please help. LOL. When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end -end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp. Always message privately.